Let's pray, shall we? Father, we do thank you for your word. And we ask that you would help us this day to hear clearly what you are saying to us and help us to live it out in our lives to your glory. Amen. Well, this morning I want to begin with a bit of an exercise. I want you to think for a moment. I want you to take a moment. Who in your mind would be the most unlikely person to ever become a Christian? Okay. Who in your mind would be the most unlikely person that you can think of to ever become a Christian? All right, I wonder who come to your mind. I wonder if it's somebody with a high profile, maybe somebody like Osama bin Laden, or maybe Ivan Malat, mass murderer, or maybe uh, the Dalai Lama, maybe they, they come to your mind. Or maybe it wasn't somebody in the public eye at all. Maybe it was someone you, that you know personally, someone you can just never imagine ever becoming a Christian. Uh, maybe, maybe it's your husband, maybe it's uh, one of your kids or all of your kids, maybe a parent, uh, maybe it's that Jehovah Witness that you know. Uh, maybe it's uh, the, the, the gay work uh, mate that you've got. Um, maybe it's just the, those people that you know that love to party. Those people that you think would never, ever, could never, ever become Christians. Maybe it's even yourself. wonder who it is. Who in your mind would be the most unlikely person to ever become a Christian? Because I think we all know people like this, don't we? Uh, and they're people that we probably tend to shy away from sharing the gospel with because we've already decided that we'd be wasting our time with these people. Or perhaps we've even tried to share the gospel with them, but we've been met by such a wall of hostility that we've just thrown our hands in the air, we've given up, we've decided that it's useless. But this morning we're going to look at a passage of scripture that I think will cause us to look at these people with a new set of eyes. A passage of scripture that will cause us to see these people as God sees them. Not as impossible cases, but as very, very, very possible cases. This morning we're going to be looking at a man named Saul. A man who you and I might consider as a most unlikely person indeed to ever become a Christian. Why would we think of Saul as being an unlikely man to become a Christian? Well, let's begin with some background on Saul. You see, Saul is a Jew. He's not a token Jew. The New Testament describes him as a Hebrew of Hebrews. He's an untainted Jew, untainted by the world, untainted by Greek and Roman culture. He's a pure descendant of Abraham. He comes from the esteemed tribe of Benjamin. What's more, Saul is a Pharisee. That is, he's part of that movement committed to preserving Jewish heritage. We tend to think negatively about Pharisees, don't we, because of um, the run-ins that Jesus had with the Pharisees. But on the whole, Pharisees were godly people. They were people who were concerned about the Bible and wanted to preserve the Jewish laws. And as a Pharisee, Saul, well, he advanced beyond many his own age. He was the best of the best of the best. He's a man who knew the law, a man who loved the law, a man who lived the law. And it's for all these reasons that Saul was committed to seeking out and destroying anything that might threaten the purity of the Jewish religion as he understood it. Especially something like Christianity. 
You remember where we're up to in Acts, that over the last couple of years since uh, Jesus has ascended into heaven, that the, the number of Christians there in Jerusalem has grown from something like, well, 120. All the, now we've got tens of thousands of believers there in Jerusalem. Christianity has set Jerusalem ablaze. And so in Saul's eyes, Christianity has become the greatest threat to Judaism. It is, after all, a sect which claims that not only has the Christ come, but the Christ has been crucified. That's blasphemy in Saul's eyes. This is, after all, a sect which claims that righteousness can be found apart from the law. This is heresy in Saul's eyes. Christianity was an insult to everything that Saul held dear and true. Christianity had set Jerusalem ablaze. And so now out of zeal for God's truth as he understood it, Saul sets about putting himself at the centre of the effort to extinguishing that blaze. You might remember that uh, he was there at the stoning of the godly man Christian, uh, sorry, the, the godly Christian man Stephen. He was there, he was the one given the nod of approval as they picked up the stones to throw at him. You might remember that he was there behind the great persecution that broke out against the Christians that day. A persecution so intense that it saw many Christians running for their lives, fleeing in terror outside of the areas of Judea. It was Saul who was behind the scattering of Christians throughout the Roman Empire. Can you now see why we might consider Saul a most unlikely person to become a Christian. He hated Christians and he hated everything that they stood for. And as we come to Acts chapter 9, we see all the more just how much he was committed to wiping them out. See, this scattering of Christians throughout the empire has caused a new concern for Saul. Rather than extinguishing the blaze as he had hoped, this scattering of, of Christians now means that spot fires are starting up all over the place. Christians are now sharing with people everywhere the message about Jesus. It's a problem for Saul, and so Saul decides to do something about it. He comes up with a plan. He decides that what he's going to do is go to the foreign city of Damascus. He's going to go there and hunt down fugitive Jewish converts that are hiding there. He's going to bring them back to Jerusalem and have them silenced one way or another. But because Damascus is a foreign city, Saul, well, he first needs to get authorisation from the high priest to carry out his plan. Read with me from chapter 9, verse 1. Acts chapter 9, verse 1. Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus, so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, that is, if he found Christians, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. Saul goes, goes to the high priest, he gets the authorization he needs, and then he starts off on his 300-kilometer trek north to the city of Damascus. And he almost reaches the city walls when a most momentous event takes place. An event 
that would change Saul's life forever. An event so life-changing that it could only be described as a Damascus Road experience. Saul encounters the risen Lord Jesus. Verse 3, verse 3. As Saul neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? The light, the, the voice from heaven, it can mean only one thing. Saul knows that this is an encounter with the divine. No wonder he fell to the ground. So how terrifying it must have been for Saul to be asked that question. Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? I reckon Saul probably already suspected who it was that was addressing him here. Maybe he was just hoping against hope that he was wrong when he asked his question in verse 5. Who are you, Lord? Then came the reply that Saul was that no doubt dreading. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Oh dear. Suddenly, everything that Saul had heard Stephen say about Jesus was starting to ring true. Jesus really is the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God in heaven. Jesus really is the Christ. And so with his face in the dirt, Saul is confronted with two life-shattering truths. Firstly, that the one he was persecuting was in fact the Lord of all. That the God he was trying to serve, he was in fact blaspheming. And secondly, that the Christian people he had been persecuting were so united, so connected with their Lord, that Saul's persecution of them could be said to be of Jesus. Saul had been trying to destroy that which was closest to God's heart, his church. What an altogether crushing moment for this man Saul. Well, Jesus goes on to command Saul. He tells him to get up from the ground and to go on into Damascus and to wait there for further instructions. But as Saul picks himself up out of the dirt, he discovers that he's blind. He can't see a thing. And so it's left for his companions to guide him into Damascus. From verse 6, verse 6. Jesus said, now get up and go into the city and you will be told what you must do. The men travelling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound but did not see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand into Damascus. For three days he was blind and did not eat or drink anything. Now notice here, make sure you notice here that Saul's companions are also witnesses to this heavenly encounter. That they're left speechless, they're amazed. And elsewhere we're told that Saul's companions, they actually saw the light too. And they were able to hear a voice speaking but they weren't able to make out what the voice was actually saying. See, this wasn't some internal experience for Saul. This wasn't an epileptic seizure, as a recent episode of the ABC's Compass program tried to suggest. This was a real, this was an historic encounter with the risen Lord Jesus. 
Well, after Saul's companions led him into Damascus, there he sits for three days, three long days in darkness. Three days, no doubt, rethinking everything that he had ever thought about God. I'm sure he just had so many questions he wanted to ask, so many answers he wanted. But how would he find out all these things? Well, initially, at least, he would find out through a man named Ananias, a man who would also have an encounter with Jesus from verse 10. Verse 10. In Damascus, there was a disciple named Ananias. The Lord called to him in a vision, Ananias. Yes, Lord, he answered. The Lord told him, Go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. In a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. Now, now, keep in mind here that Ananias is described as a disciple. In other words, he's a Jewish convert to Christianity. In other words, he's exactly the sort of person that Saul has come to Damascus to get. And such was the infamy of Saul and his persecution of Christians that Ananias knows exactly who he is. His reputation goes before him. And so you can kind of understand why Ananias would hesitate at Jesus' command. Look with me at verse 13. Verse 13. Lord, Ananias answered. You can hear it in his voice, can't you? Lord, I've heard many reports about this man and all the harm he's done to your saints in Jerusalem and, uh, well, ah... He has come here with authority from the chief priests to arrest all who call on your name. As though he's telling telling Jesus something he didn't know. Well, Jesus reassures Ananias. He says, Ananias, this Saul Saul is mine. And I will use him for my purposes. No longer will he cause suffering on account of my name but he will suffer on account of my name. Verse 15. But the Lord said to Ananias, Go, this man is my chosen instrument to carry my name before the Gentiles and their kings and before the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. And with that, Ananias leaves to meet up with Saul. Can you imagine how Ananias was feeling that day as he left the safety of his home? Can you imagine what was going through his mind as he turned to the corner onto Straight Street? How he was feeling in the stomach as he walked up the driveway of that house where he knew Saul was staying. As he walked into the room and saw this man of persecution This hater of Christians, staring into nothingness. I wonder whether Ananias' mind was uh, filled with doubts. I wonder if his heart was pounding. I wonder if his skin had gone cold, uh, though still sweating. I imagine so. But what happens next is what I can only describe as a beautiful encounter a beautiful encounter between Ananias and Saul. Look with me at verse 17. 
Then Ananias went to the house and entered it. Placing his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul. What a beautiful encounter. Ananias comes and and places his hands on Saul. The first words he says to him, Brother Saul. What a beautiful picture of acceptance. Ananias is here confronted with his would-be killer. And yet he has the humility to see things God's way. I'm sure, I'm sure that every impulse in Ananias was saying to him, run. And yet he didn't. He was willing, he was obedient, because such was the grace of God at work in this man, Ananias. Well, Ananias, he goes on to explain to Saul that, yes, that Jesus that you saw saw on the road uh, to Damascus is indeed the Lord of all. And it's with that truth ringing in Saul's ears that suddenly he's able to see again. Halfway through verse 17. Brother Saul, the Lord, Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, he has sent me that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately something like scales fell from Saul's eyes and he could see again. He got up and was baptised. And after taking some food, he regained his strength. Saul spent several days with the disciples in Damascus. Note that it's not just physical sight that Saul receives here, but spiritual sight. Because for the very first time in his life, Saul is able to see clearly that Jesus is indeed Lord of all. And it's with that new belief that he's baptised. The nourishment and strengthening that Saul receives through eating, no doubt being matched through the, with the spiritual nourishment and strengthening that he receives through spending time with Ananias and the other Christians and learning from them. What a recovery we see in this man. What a recovery and what a transformation. Because immediately, we're told, at once, we're told, Saul starts going from synagogue to synagogue there in Damascus, not to catch Christians, but to start preaching that Jesus is the Son of God, that he is the Christ. And as you can imagine, everybody that hears him is flawed. This is not the Saul that they've heard about. Verse 20. Verse 20. At once he began to preach in the synagogues that Jesus is the Son of God. All those who heard him were astonished and asked, Isn't he the man who raised havoc in Jerusalem among those who call on this name? And hasn't he come here to take them as prisoners to the chief priests? Yet Saul grew more and more powerful and baffled the Jews living in Damascus by proving that Jesus is the Christ. So soon after his conversion, and already uh, Saul is starting to baffle the Jews, no doubt opening up his Old Testament with them and proving to them from the Old Testament scriptures that Jesus really is the Christ. And yet it was this very ability to argue his case that would now put Saul's life in the firing line. A plan is hatched by the local Jews. These are local Jews who are zealous for the purity of Judaism as they they know it, just like Saul once was. 
But now they see Saul as the threat. They want him dead. So the local Jews, what they do is they keep a close watch on the gate to the city to make sure that Saul can't escape before they have their opportunity to kill him. But their plan becomes known to Saul, and so his friends help him escape by another route. Look with me from verse 23. Verse 23. After many days had gone by, the Jews conspired to kill him. But Saul learned their plan. Day and night they kept close watch on the city gates in order to kill him. But his followers took him by night and lowered him in a basket through an opening in the wall. Humble beginnings for the Christian life of this man Saul, aren't they? Suddenly, suddenly the hunter has become the hunted. It seems that uh, Jesus' words to Ananias concerning Saul are already coming into effect. That already Saul is beginning to be shown how much he must suffer for the name of Jesus. But safely out of Damascus, Saul now heads back to Jerusalem. And unsurprisingly, he decides to meet up with the Christians there. If only it was so easy. Because Saul's reputation still goes before him. And the Christians there in Jerusalem, they fear that just maybe Saul isn't a real Christian at all. He's just pretending that maybe he's a bit like a KGB agent or a CIA agent, you know, infiltrating, trying to gather all the information that he can before wiping them out. It takes the disciple Barnabas to convince the apostles that Saul's conversion is genuine. Verse 26. Verse 26. When Saul came to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him, not believing that he really was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles. He told them how Saul on his journey had seen the Lord and that the Lord had spoken to him, and how in Damascus he had preached fearlessly in the name of Jesus. Good old Barnabas, son of encouragement. He certainly lives up to that nickname, doesn't he? Here, just like Ananias, it's Barnabas who, who's now trusting that God is able to change even the hardest of hearts. So it's through Barnabas that Saul becomes accepted by the, the apostles. And it's at this point that Saul once again starts preaching about Jesus. Once again, he starts uh, trying to convince people that Jesus is the Christ. And once again, he must run for his life. Verse 28. So Saul stayed with them and moved about freely in Jerusalem, speaking boldly in the name of the Lord. He talked and debated with the Grecian Jews, but they tried to kill him. When the brothers learned of this, they took him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. Now Saul is way off in Tarsus. Now the man who was at the centering, at the centre of the scattering of Christians throughout the empire has himself been scattered. And the result of all this, the result of all of this for the church, well, it's a time of peace. A time of peace for the church. Verse 31. Then the church throughout Judea, Galilee and Samaria enjoyed a time of peace. It was strengthened and encouraged by the Holy Spirit. It grew in numbers, living in the fear of the Lord. Wow. Wow, what a turnaround. At the beginning of this chapter, 
Christians seem like they're about to be decimated. And now? Well, now they're being strengthened and encouraged. And now they're growing in numbers. At the beginning of this chapter, the Christians are living in the fear of Saul and of persecution. Now they're living in the fear of the Lord. What a turnaround. But then this really is a passage of turnarounds. Just think about it for a moment. It begins with Saul looking to arrest Christians. It ends with Saul arrested by the grace of God. It has Saul looking to lay his hands on Christians. Instead, a Christian comes and lays his hands on him. It starts with Saul, an adversary. It ends up with him, a brother. It starts, he starts as a hunter. He ends up the hunted. The scatterer becomes the scattered. He who is blind is given sight. This is a passage of turnarounds. Turnarounds so extraordinary that they can only be attributed to the hand of God. Let's face it. Saul is a man who we as humans would consider most unlikely to ever become a Christian. And yet what this passage teaches us is that God is able to turn around even the hardest of hearts. We have a God who makes a complete mockery of our human presumptions. We have a God who makes a complete mockery of our human presumptions. You know, the funny thing is that this Saul, this Saul who once tried so hard to extinguish the, the, the fire of Christianity, would then, be, would then go on to be used by God to set the whole world on fire? This Saul, who perhaps you know better through his Greek name, Paul, would go on to become an apostle of Jesus Christ. This apostle would go on to be responsible for the gospel going into all of the world. This Saul would become a man responsible for writing half of your New Testaments that you've got there in front of you. Isn't it true that God makes a mockery of our human presumptions? You don't think God could turn the heart of Osama bin Laden or Ivan Malat or the Dalai Lama to himself if he so chose? <sighs> of course he could. You don't think that God could turn the heart of your husband or your parent or your child or your gay workmate or those people that just like to party? to himself or that Jehovah's Witness friend? You don't think so? Of course he could. You don't think that God could even choose you if he hasn't already? Well, that's what you think. Sure, it's true. We don't have the same assurance that Ananias had. We don't have... The assurance that our family member or friend has necessarily been deemed by Jesus as his chosen instrument. It's true. Unlike Ananias, we don't have the assurance that God will definitely turn that person to himself. But what we do have 
is the assurance that God is completely in control. That he wants us to obediently take the gospel to all people and he will choose whoever he so desires. Friends, we need to stop in our human presumptions on who will and who will not become Christians. We need to start seeing everyone through a new set of eyes. Through the eyes of God. And we need to faithfully share with all people the message that Jesus is indeed Lord of all. Let's pray. Our Father, we praise you for your sovereign grace. For you choose who you will. Forgive us when in our ignorance we decide who can and cannot become Christians. Help us to trust you. We pray for those we know who are yet to call Jesus Lord. Have mercy upon them, we pray. And help us to be faithful in sharing the gospel with them and all people. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.